Just as we've sung, Lord Jesus, we look forward to a day when earth and heaven will be one. And we also want to pray for ourselves in these uh, coming two weeks as we have so many events going on um, regarding Easter. And we pray that you would increase our understanding and our worship of you, Lord Jesus, our understanding of what it is you actually accomplished by your cross and your resurrection on our behalf, and that we would become even better worshipers of you as our Lord and Savior. We pray that as we enter Passion Week next week, that as we look into a series on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday of you, Jesus, being the greater son of David, that this would be something that would just open our eyes to the scriptures and the depth to what they point to, who you are as our, the eternal son of God, become man on our behalf. We pray that you would make these meditations and this week that we have coming upon us be something that would be a real blessing. We pray for the journey to the cross event, this interactive experience that those of us that would go through it, that we would come to a greater appreciation of your suffering and also your glory. We also pray for the event, the Messiah and the Passover coming up, and that all of those who would attend would learn how the Old Testament so clearly speaks of a Messiah that is so clearly identifiable, and that that's you, Lord Jesus, and that you'd bring them to a true faith in you, that they would understand that looking back can lead to a great enrichment of our faith as well. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would bless the Word of God that you have written, that from the Gospel of Luke we would see more of the glory of Jesus, for it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, this morning is a little bit unique in the sense it's like you're going to get two Palm Sundays in a row, because where we are in the Gospel of Luke is the triumphal entry this morning. And, uh, but we're going to start next week, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, there's always a series. So this year it's going to be on the greater son of David, and we're going to look at two psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 72, and we'll be looking at Psalm 118. And uh, so, but this morning we're talking about peace. And it's probably true that, you know, most people that you and I know are searching for peace, in their soul, and they search in many different ways. You probably know some people that incorporate God into their search for peace and other people who leave Him out. And I think it's fair to say that most of these people that we know in the world don't really find it. In fact, many people will just simply tell you that they're still searching. And they mean it in an honest way. There are some people that say they're close to finding it or nearly have or maybe have indeed found it, but I've discovered that when it comes to this matter of pursuing peace, that people have a great need and desire to really hear a lot of stories, to have a deep conversation with a Christian, and to get clear definition about a lot of things in, spiritual, in the spiritual realm. You see, because many people believe that soul peace, peace in their soul, is a feeling that they can create by various spiritual pursuits. And then it's their hope to really move all these experiences into some kind of a state of constant peace in their life. And so these feelings then of spirituality get equated with being close to God, or being favored by God, or being accepted by God. But surely you realize that many people actually die thinking that being a good person and having some sense of spirituality in their life is all that's required to gain eternal life. 
And sadly, some people think that that's even what it means to be a Christian. But you also understanding that the, you understand these are great misunderstandings, and we all know that it's peace comes from God through Jesus Christ. But you know, many people don't know this, and while conversations with people who don't know God, who don't know Christ, with conversations about peace can be very unsettling because you never know what direction they're going to go in, I would just really encourage you to be open to talking to people that you run into about peace because it's a universal desire that people have and the Lord will give you the words you need when it's time. Well, there are two significant facts from the Bible, of course, that have to be ex accepted and understood and that is, is that there are two kinds of peace. There's peace with God and then there's the peace that God gives us and they come in that order in our lives. But both kinds of peace can't be obtained any other place but in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the King of peace, and He grants peace with God, and He gives the peace from God. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, or you can follow along in your worship folder. I printed the text for you, and we're going to discover this peace that Jesus talks about together. We're going to simply read the storyline as we go. But in our passage this morning, we're going to see that Jesus Christ has brought peace to the world, and he promises a complete peace when he comes back in glory. He's already brought peace to the world. And when he comes back in glory, he's going to bring the fullness of it. And so now Jesus in our storyline in Luke is approaching Jerusalem for the last time. If you remember, as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, back at the end of chapter 9, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem. It's taking him a very long time to get there as we read through the Gospel of Luke because he has so many teachings, so many miracles to be doing along the way. And when he finally gets there, it's all intentional to offer himself upon that cross for the glory of God and for the salvation of sinners. But Luke, in our passage this morning, is really presenting to us three scenes, really of a play that Jesus is enacting, and you might even call the play Peace. It comes from Zechariah, the prophet, which we'll look at in a moment. But there are three, three scenes in our passage that encourage people to receive the peace he brings. In verses 28 to 34, there are all the preparations that are taking place. You can see it's getting set up. This peace play is about to be performed. And then in verses 35 to 40, it gets proclaimed for all the world. And finally, in 41 to 44, peace is rejected, and so it gets removed from others. So again, today in Luke, we're finally getting to Jerusalem, although you'll notice even in our passage today, Jesus is still approaching. So in verse 28, we read here, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He's not there yet. And you look down in verse 41. And when he drew near, he saw the city. In other words, he's not yet going to be rejected. That's coming. Before we observe, though, this cross and resurrection of Jesus, there is a short ministry of teaching that goes through chapter 21 in the Gospel according to Luke. Now, another thing that you might be interested in doing on your own, especially for this time of the year, is comparing the different gospel accounts and how they tell the stories. And so, there are complementary versions of the triumphal entry that we're looking at today into Jerusalem, and each gospel writer has their unique emphasis of what they want to draw to the readers. In Matthew, as you read the whole book of Matthew, but especially as you get to his presentation of the triumphal entry, it's about messianic prophecy being fulfilled, and he interprets it for us. 
That's Matthew's presentation. Mark's presentation, as throughout his whole gospel, is to just tell us the simple story. And to emphasize the enthusiasm of the crowd, even though they had no understanding at this time. John, again, it's a theme throughout his gospel account. It's all about worshiping Jesus as the eternal son. And so when he presents the triumphal entry, it's a very worshipful presentation, worshiping the Savior of the world who's come. And when we get to Luke, the one we're looking at today, Luke is very concerned about spreading the gospel to the very ends of the earth. It's one of his great themes and the book of Acts that he wrote as well. And so here when he presents the triumphal entry, he's offering peace to the world, this peace that comes through Jesus, who's the king of peace. And we're not going to integrate all these storylines today, but focus upon Luke's presentation, but that might be something you want to do on your own during this Easter season. Well, again, Jesus brought peace to the world for anybody who would have it, and he's going to bring a complete peace when he comes back. And so we begin with the first scene, peace about to be performed. But there's a little bit of background. It's very important to know everything that took place right up, right before this, in the, in the past few days, a week or so. So, you know, Jesus arrived in Bethany a few days before this, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And he hides out in Ephraim until the time in which he's going to reveal. And so he passes through Jericho, he blesses children, he teaches some teachings. He converses with the rich young ruler. He heals Bartimaeus, or his friend, talks to his friend, and the Zacchaeus story. All of that takes place. Mary anoints him on Saturday, the day before the triumphal entry. And then we begin the presentation. And it says, and when he had said these things, what things did Jesus say? Well, Luke is reminding us of his presentation Well, these things, this parable that Jesus just told about the minas and how he would reward the faithful and how he would judge the rejectors of him. He just told this parable. And if you go back to the beginning of that parable in Luke 19, verse 11, it says, as they heard these things, those things being the things about Zacchaeus and his conversion, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so the people in our storyline today, they want to hail Jesus as their king because they think he's bringing the fullness of the kingdom that day. That's the kind of praise they want to give. But this time, Jesus is coming not for that, but on a different mission first. Oh yes, he's inaugurated the kingdom of God, but he's bringing peace first, a peace with God because he offered himself in our place for our sin. And so we begin. He sends out his disciples to make preparations in verses 29 to 31, and then the disciples complete those in verses 32 to 34. And so we read, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where upon entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So upon reaching these suburban villages, if you will, to Jerusalem, Bethphage and Bethany, 
um, which Bethany is the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, on the east side of Mount Olivet. Jesus instructs and sends two of his disciples out to this nearby village, maybe it was Bethphage, we don't know for sure, to procure a colt that had never been ridden. And this whole episode, uh, to which Luke and both Matthew and Mark give a lot of attention, is all about drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is displaying his knowledge and his sovereignty over the whole set of events that are about to occur. And this is really important, because when you start to read about Jesus dying on a cross, you sort of wonder, who's in charge here? So at the very beginning of the week, it's very clear that Jesus is the one who is in charge. He's the divine Messiah who has authority over and controls all the events of his own death and resurrection. Now at this time, um, Passover happening in our storyline and the pilgrimages that people would be making, there would be a lot of businessmen in the area that would be willing to rent you a donkey and to be available to travelers. And so Jesus gives detailed instructions on this colt. He tells his disciples exactly where you're going to find it upon entering the village, uh, about the situation, uh, incorporating a little bit from Matthew here. There's going to be a colt. Uh, tied with its mother, the condition of this colt, never been ridden, and the means on how you're going to procure it. You're going to have this little minor dialogue with the owner. And it would all happen exactly like Jesus said in verses 32 to 34, which we'll look at in a moment. Now, sure, Jesus perhaps could have arranged all this previously or parts of it, but it's meant to be understood as it's all really supernatural. Jesus is the one that is in control of what is going on here. And the choice of a cult was deliberate. It's to make a point that he has come as a king of peace, not a king of conquest. In other words, Jesus purposefully is not riding a horse. He's riding a colt. And Jesus, you see, is interpreting the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 for us as an acted parable. Luke doesn't even need to quote it because Jesus lived it out. And that's what takes place here. In Zechariah 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now Jesus had come at this time as the king of peace. Not temporary earthly political victories as the people were hoping for. He's bringing salvation. He's bringing gospel peace in his first coming by his cross and resurrection. But he will return as this little prophecy ends as the king of glory and he's going to destroy every other kingdom and establish his own. And he'll establish universal peace at his second coming, like we read in Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. You see, at that time, Jesus will ride the war horse, but at this time, he's riding the colt of peace. Furthermore, we should notice the choice of the colt he picks. It's unridden. That's deliberate to emphasize that this particular animal was saved for the king and the king only. Perhaps even 
that it's meant to be saved for his holiness and purity and sacredness that no one else would ride this one. Well, then Jesus' disciples complete the preparations, and we read in verses 32 to 34, So those who were sent away and found it, they found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. So it all happened just like Jesus said. And what does Jesus mean and what's understood by these words, the Lord has need of it? It's a confession that Jesus is indeed Lord and Master. I mean, the owners are willing to let Jesus, the Master, the Rabbi, perhaps the Lord even, have use of their animals, and yet their question perhaps includes the question, why the colt and not a donkey? And we're to again notice and understand the symbolism here of peace and royalty. Jesus is the king of peace, as Zechariah 9 talks about. And he's about to perform his little play, his little illustration of Zechariah called Peace Before the Crowd at Jerusalem. But before we watch it, we should note that we've read of a precise fulfillment of Jesus' directions for this animal. That's really important in This gospel account, Matthew's gospel account, and Mark's gospel account. They are all amazed that our Lord Jesus is our God and he has such knowledge and authority that he can direct such details. And that should amaze us as well. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. And so when we witness again the humiliation and the cross, we should remember this because it will be so easy to forget when we get there. Well, then the second scene takes place, peace proclaimed for all of the world. There's the acclamations that come from the populace in verses 35 to 38, and then in 39 to 40, we see the rebuke from the religious leaders. And so the story continues, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. On verse 35, the disciples bring the colt. From Matthew's account, we know the mother as well. And they use their garments as a saddle, if you will, for Jesus to honor the king, and then they decide to throw them also down, spreading their garments on the road for Jesus to give him the red carpet treatment, if you will, deserving of royalty, and palm branches are, of course, used too. Other gospel writers refer to those. And then in verses 37 to 38, they crest the Mount of Olives, 300 feet above the Temple Hill, and they begin their descent toward Jerusalem, and the site itself puts the multitudes in an even greater frenzy accompanying Jesus, composed of pilgrims, composed of those who lived in Jerusalem, the crowd is growing, composed of disciples, composed of so many people who had seen and heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. And they begin to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, it says, for all the miracles that they have seen. And we can remember from Luke chapter 7 where they're delineated for us in verse 22, the blind receive sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, 
The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And most notably and recently, the greatest miracle he performed is the resurrection of Lazarus, which would prefigure his own, of course. Well, many, if not most, are thinking, well, the kingdom of God is here. They're misguided, of course, expecting the immediate fulfillment of the kingdom of God, getting rid of those Romans and having their salvation for their political purposes back, thinking very limited things. But, of course, the kingdom had come, but not as they thought. Jesus had inaugurated it, but he hadn't yet consummated it. Of course, we know that after his resurrection, he would ascend on high, and he would reign from heaven, and then when he returns, that's when he'll bring the more glorious expression of the kingdom of God. And, of course, it's also important to realize that not everyone in the crowd is probably has false faith, and some of his disciples just haven't been enlightened yet, and are very confused about what's going on and all the significance, which would come later to them as the Spirit would reveal it. But you see, in a few days, this crowd's acclamation is going to turn to crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because he disappointed them. It's because he didn't do what they wanted him to do and expected him to do. They're disenchanted with him, and they become violent. And their so-called faith that they had in this Jesus turns out to be shown for what it really is. It's just selfish faith. It's just ignorant faith. And then in verse 38, we read of their acclamation that's given to God and, and Jesus here, where they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew and Mark start their rec recording of Psalm 118 from verse 25 with the word Hosanna, which means save now. But Luke jumps directly to verse 26, where this phrase, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, has already become understood as a messianic title. And so he quotes verse 26 in reference to what they're saying to him, that they're blessing him as if he's the king himself. They're blessing him as the Messiah. Jesus would be bringing the kingdom's blessings. He is the son of David. He is the king. The crowd's correct, but not in their expectations of what this king is doing and how he's going to establish his kingdom. And they proclaim peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Luke is showing us that this should remind us of how he opened his gospel. Back in Luke chapter 2, in those words, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude in the heavenly host, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. See, the gospel of Luke is all about proclaiming that salvation is now for all of the world. And that's why that's the series title for Luke. Now at first when we see this phrase, peace in heaven, it might appear as a strange reversal to what we read at the beginning of the gospel account, peace on earth from the birth narrative. Of course there's peace in heaven, right? I mean, if there's any peace anywhere, it would be there. But this is a, simply a paraphrastic way to refer to God as the author of peace and salvation, and that God's peace and salvation have now actually come to earth. This is the true peace from God, both in a spiritual, eternal sense of salvation and something that we experience on a daily basis. It's not intended 
of course, by the original speakers in all of this detail, but it's certainly intended that way by Luke for his church. True peace, you see, from this whole episode should be pretty clear. True peace doesn't come from the government's making. True peace doesn't come from religion's making. True peace doesn't come from self-making or anybody else. It comes from God, and it's in Jesus Christ alone. And this phrase of acclamation here, glory in the highest, is a way of praising God and asking for the coming glory to come right now in view of all that's taking place. To see the greatest manifestation of God's glory on this earth ever. And again, the original proclaimers probably knew very little of this, but Luke wants us to think about and hope for what is coming. And then there's this rebuke from the religious leaders because this is getting out of control. All of this frenzy, all of this acclamation, all of this specific declaration that this guy is the Messiah who's bringing the kingdom right now in all of its fullness. And so we read then in verse 39 and 40, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So we do learn that some Pharisees are in the crowd. Now maybe some of these Pharisees were friendly, but now they're getting worried about what's going on. And of course, they're very fearful of their overlords. Or perhaps, more likely, these Pharisees were antagonistic, as we've seen so much in Luke, and they're just there to find something wrong. And now they're very offended and outraged at what the people are saying, because they understand the clarity of these acclamations these people are making regarding Jesus. In John's Gospel, in chapter 12, 19, we read that the Pharisees therefore said to one another, regarding their plotting against Jesus at this point, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And so they demand from Jesus a rebuke of his disciples because they believe that his, Jesus' disciples are overstating the case about Jesus. And he wants, they want Jesus to correct that. Well, this should remind us of the parable of the minas that Jesus just told and Luke recorded for us. But the citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Jesus then, in what had become very famous words, tells them that it's impossible. He's not going to do it. And that the crowd is right. If, these stones, if they become silent, these stones will cry out. Now, there are a lot of different ways we might interpret this phrase you know, throughout the history of the church. One is um, this, it's, it's, it's no more possible for the crowds to be silent than it would be for stones to even speak. Another interpretation is the crowd is really crying out against the Pharisees for their evil and the rejection of him as the Messiah. And if they stop giving acclamations, those stones are going to turn against the crowd of disciples if they stop their praise. But most likely, if they stop, then the stones will rise up to speak praise of Jesus as the Messiah. Because it's God's will that his Messiah and his kingdom on this particular day would be praised. And it would not fail. Perhaps there's even a hidden message, or not so hidden after all, 
is that these stones are more spiritually perceptive than these Pharisees. Wouldn't put it past Jesus to do that. Peace is proclaimed for all the world by the voice of the crowd and by the acting of Jesus. The simplest of applications here is that our acclamations to Jesus, to God, should be joyful, loud praise, glorifying Him for all of His works, especially for the work of God in Christ Jesus. This is how we sing, how we sang this morning, how we sing every week. We don't sing meekly. We sing loudly. And we worship the King of Peace, the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's brought peace to the world, and He promises a complete peace when He comes back in glory. So at this point in our story, the crowd is really whipped up in a frenzy. The Pharisees are protesting for Jesus to rebuke them. And then Jesus now weeps. And so we get to the third scene where peace is rejected and so removed. And so in verses 41 and 42, Jesus laments the rejection of the peace that he offers. And in verses 43 to 44, he removes even the peace that they have. And so the story continues. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. So Jesus gets close to Jerusalem, you see, and he gets a second view. And it causes him to weep. Like a parent weeping over a child who's made very foolish decisions. The situation, this situation, and the death of Lazarus are the only two mentions in the Bible of Jesus crying or Jesus weeping. And surely... As one of us, he would have cried on other occasions as well. But, you know, this isn't a quiet sobbing or an internal sadness. If anything, it's probably an audible wailing. It's not fake. The crowd would be stunned that Jesus is crying over them. That's because he's the Son of God and he has more knowledge and more compassion than we would ever have or could have for anybody. His weeping is like the weeping of a prophet for the hardness of heart of the people who hear the word of God. The tragedy weighs very heavy upon him. The tragedy of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to be coming very shortly. The tragedy of the historical repetition, again, of apostasy. It's like another fall of Jerusalem. It's like another exile, but in a spiritual sense. The tragedy of the loss of people's salvation for many, many people. And we too must lament over the unsaved and all of them, especially the ones we know and maybe especially the ones we don't know, but that we're committed to reach with the gospel through missions. You see, the Jerusalemites missed the day of salvation, the time, the life, the ministry of Jesus Christ. Not just that Sunday. The city of peace, which is what Jerusalem means, has not known what makes for peace. That is salvation. Earlier in Luke's gospel, in chapter 13, we read this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would have not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. 
and I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes, and this passage is talking about his return, when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That will be the final fulfillment of Psalm 118.26. We get a precursor in our storyline today. And so since they've rejected the salvation of God and Jesus Christ, judgment from heaven is going to come upon them very swiftly. Spiritual blindness, the very first thing that's mentioned, would be even worse than it is. More would be hidden, and people would be hardened, just like in the exile of old. Salvation would go primarily to other peoples of the world, and they would have to wait as a group to the very end to see salvation among themselves. Rome would destroy Jerusalem, a picture of more doom coming at the final day of the Lord, again, just like the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. The message is pretty clear. Eternal damnation looms over their heads as long as they reject Jesus as the Christ. He's their only hope. It's the same spiritual reality that's been the reality ever since and even today. And then Jesus removes even the peace they have. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus here predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, mainly under the Romans, under Titus. It took four years, 66 to 70 AD. He describes a very typical approach of the Romans to conquer a city like this. Embankment to breach the wall, surrounding the city and sieging it. In this case, it took 143 days. Hemming people in, applying the pressure, leveling it to the ground. You know, only the wailing wall left. Children killed in this war, 600,000 deaths and thousands more taken captive, and not leave one stone upon another, just like so long ago. And perhaps here is where we really have the stones crying out in judgment from verse 40. After the crowd went silent. So why? Why would Jesus predict this? Why would God send it? It's because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. Visitation by God, visitation by the Messiah, visitation for the promised peace of salvation that the prophets have told for centuries. The peace of God was rejected, and so it would all be removed. And even what they had or thought they had would be taken away. You know, Jesus has taught about this at least three times in the Gospel of Luke, taking away what people think they have. And the triumphal entry illustrates and proves the parable of Minas again. His citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. And then in verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But Jesus Christ brought peace to the world, to those who would have it, and he promises a complete peace when he returns. Well, the Lord Jesus is the King of Peace, and he grants both peace with God and peace of God. He brings true peace, true salvation that we need by his cross for sin and his resurrection for eternal life. He's the only way, in the most glorious way. You know, in verse 42, Jesus said the people of Jerusalem haven't known in this day the things which make for peace. Do you know what makes for peace? 
peace with God, salvation from God. Now, peace is simply another term in our passage for salvation, for reconciliation with God, and then a peace that flows out of our souls. The most fundamental question is, what about your sin? You want peace in your soul regarding your sin. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, Jesus Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So Luke, in writing this and recording this story, is asking all of his readers if they want this peace. Do you want this peace? I mean, don't just assume that you have the peace if you don't really have it and you don't really experience it. What else can we say about this passage? You know, what are these stones crying out teach us about our relationship to God in Christ by the Spirit? Well, I think one lesson is pretty simple is don't look like a dusty gray stone on Sunday morning. You know, Ramey told me to say that. Don't look like that when you worship, right? Don't let a stone take your place. I mean, the Redeemer is so glorious that we can offer even greater praise than inanimate objects with the love of God in our souls that only we know. And we have more reason to praise because we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been created for a greater purpose and a greater reality. We were made in the image of God. We were redeemed from our sins, and we are going to be forever praising Him. The second application really is that these stones don't point to themselves, they really point to the crowd. And they point back as the crowd is a model, but a model that we're supposed to surpass, not just a model that we are equal with. We are supposed to be able to praise God at least as well as false followers and dull disciples. Because we have the Holy Spirit within us and the fullness of revelation in the New Testament. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, they worshipped with great joy and a loud voice, it says, over the miracles that they saw in verse 37. And so we should worship with greater joy and louder congregational praise than, because we worship Him for more than just those miracles, but we worship Him for all of who He is and who we understand Him to be, for all everything, everything He's done, everything He's doing, and what He's going to do when He returns. And if we have peace with God, we should thoroughly enjoy it and live our lives that way. And if we have glory in a coming king when he gets here, we should be anticipating that right now with a great hope. Here's our promise of peace and glory brought together in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, Jesus has a plan for world peace. And he has a plan for God's glory over all of it. He's returning. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you brought peace to the world. We praise you that you promise a complete peace when you return in glory as the conquering king. We praise you, God our Father, that in Jesus Christ, your Son, we have peace with you because of his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, knowing that 
that was accepted on our behalf, that we have a future, we've been justified, and we will reign in heaven and on this earth in glory in the kingdom. And we pray that you would cause us as your people, Lord God, to live out this peace we have in Jesus Christ in our lives that's evident to everyone around us, so that people seek us out for conversations about where that peace comes from. And may we give honor to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.